to the September 2012 edition of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here today with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Matt? Doing okay. Thank you. Good. And we are joined today uh, by a friend of Matt's, uh, who I've not met yet. I'm going to get to meet him here during the podcast today, and that is Milton Vincent. Milton, welcome. Hello. Once you, uh, why don't we begin? Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you and Matt get to know each other? Well, we met. Uh, was it in March, Matt? Yeah, it was late March. Yeah, at a, a men's retreat at, at uh, North City Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. Uh, know it well. Okay, <laughs> uh, and yeah, we got to meet there and had a great time with the. The men there at that church, just walking them through just how to put the gospel on the way that we live our lives. Um, and Matt and I had a small opportunity to fellowship while, while we were there. Milton, I'm holding in my hand a, a little book that you've written called A Gospel Primer for Christians, Learning to See the Glories of God's Love. Um, I, I'm curious... Uh, you tell in here, and we commend this to our listeners, and we'll we'll put a link up on the on the blog um, for this, so that uh, they're able to go and, and pick up a copy for themselves. But um, tell us, I mean, you've been a pastor for a long time, and tell us how did this how did this little book come into existence? Tell us a little bit about your journey. Well, I was raised in a Christian home, and uh, uh, kind of in uh, independent Baptist circles. Um, and my, you know, from my earliest days, my parents instilled in, in me and my siblings just an understanding of sin and salvation through Christ. And I think I had a pretty decent understanding for most of my life of how to be saved, but I could not, for the life of me, figure out how to stay in the good favor of God once saved. And I would, um, like pray the sinner's prayer and feel like God had forgiven me and that I was under his favor. And yes, I would trip up, I would fall, I would sin, but I would come to God and ask his forgiveness. And he always seemed happy enough to forgive me. But eventually the sheer quantity of times that I failed God would reach a point where I just would begin to feel like he was getting fed up with me and angry with me. Um, and just growing tired of forgiving me and that I was increasingly falling out of his favor. And um, so when I was trying to walk with God, I found that I was most irritable towards other people when I was trying to walk with God because I had to obsess um, on all the details of just how to maintain the favor of God or to get back into his good graces when I had failed. And I, Kind of to one degree or another, I struggled with that all my life, even through seminary and the first 10 years of my ministry as a pastor. But about 10 years ago, you know, I was just going through a season of renewal in my walk with the Lord and and seemed to be growing a lot. But that same old um, wearisome agitation started coming back on me. Uh, but just trying to obsess on just am I in God's favor and am I not? And if I'm not, I, I here's what I need to do to get back into his good graces. And 
and I don't, I don't want to get into the details because it's in the book, but there was just a, um, a point on my way home from work where I just got so fed up with, with the agitation of all that, that I, I just felt like I was ready to just give up the whole effort. But I got home and I opened my Bible to Romans five and I'm not even sure what led me there, but I just started reading it out loud and, and reading through that chapter and focusing on the doctrine of justification and how that, what hit me was that I am under God's favor all day, every day, good days and bad days, waking or sleeping, totally based upon the performance of Jesus and not mine. And I don't know, just something clicked that day um, about the reality of my justification in Christ that really started making a difference. And and over the next few days, I wrote out some truths regarding justification on a three-by-five card. And I would just carry that around with me wherever I went. And I would just keep rehearsing those truths because I found that it was easy to get out of gospel mode and back into a performance mindset. So I would, I would just rehearse those things on that card. And then what was on that card grew to the front side of a half sheet of paper and then the front and back of a half sheet of paper. I started inserting that into our church bulletin because I was, I was getting really stoked about the gospel. I wanted, you know, everyone to hear about it. Um, and just little Mm -hmm. by little over the, over time, it, it grew from just that one sheet of paper to the book that you're holding in your hands. Hmm. Yeah. I, Matt, if I can interject, there's, yeah, a, yeah, please. there's a great illustration of this that I just came across, and I'm just now making the connection, is uh, Moses, as he's described in Hebrews 11, uh, in walking by faith that he, uh, he, f- he fled to Midian after killing the Egyptian, because he thought Pharaoh, actually it wasn't Pharaoh, because Hebrews 11 tells us he wasn't afraid of Pharaoh, but then Exodus tells us he was afraid which is a, which is very interesting because you think well what what else is he afraid of if he's fleeing to Midian and and Pharaoh's after him and i i came to see it he was afraid that maybe he wasn't the deliverer hmm. that his coming down and killing the egyptian that was him trying to bring deliverance by his own power and kind of a self salvation exactly. self-justification yeah. And he, so he spent the next 40 years learning humility so that after 40 years in the wilderness, he's 80 now, God comes to him in a burning bush and says, okay, I'm ready for you to be my deliverer now. And Moses said, um, I think you got the wrong guy. But I, as listening to you, Milton, just that idea of, I, I love what you said, you're most, you were most irritable when you were trying to walk with God, that we... We, there, there's a way that we can walk after Christ, we can follow Christ in our own power. Yes. And that's that seems to me that's what you were describing, is that I, I'm sure I'm a Christian, but I'm doing it all in my own power and by my own efforts. You know, it's, and the, the big key to that, I don't know if you saw this, but had you stopped praying? Or was, had praying become sort of a rote thing? No, I would pray, but uh, even that would turn into a performance thing. I was never sure if I was praying long enough or praying for yeah. 
the right things and in my prayers, you know, confessing sin, did I think of all of them? Is there some sin that I have not thought of that maybe maybe that's what God is angry with me about? So the prayer, I mean, I would have seasons where I would pray for hours. The thing that struck me in what you just said about prayer was how Lutheresque that is. I hadn't thought about how, yeah, when Luther was struggling with that, those were the things that that was that, those were the patterns that he was walking through. Is that are you familiar with the with Luther's story? Yes. The, you know, a big similarity there. Yeah, his story resonates uh, really deeply with me. His, you know, the the interesting thing about his story is it was pre-conversion, and I'm not sure where to place what's happened to me. I mean, for all I know, I may have gotten you know converted ten years ago, um, but I but I can look to prior to then and see moments of, of really truly looking to Christ. So I'm not sure what to make of my story, but I have found, you know, over the last decade that the struggle that, you know, that I, you know, that I've experienced is amazingly common in, in, in many circles. And I think it's because uh, I was explaining in my congregation in a sermon on Sunday that we do a lot better in our spiritual lives when we can honestly say the lo- to the Lord, um, I would prefer the work system. I, I would yeah. prefer the work system because I could still feel good about myself. Yeah. We're, we're yeah, very there's, something, Go ahead. there's something in it. There's something in us that I think, uh, you know, prefers that. And I think in my case, I, I, I just found it exhausting. Like I, I would go in spurts, like maybe for a few weeks of really trying to make this thing work. And I would end up just collapsing in spiritual exhaustion. And then during the time periods where I was, you know, really trying to walk in God's favor and it was more of a per- performance-based lifestyle, um, I would alternate between pride and condemnation. Uh, one day I'm, I'm feeling quite proud of myself that I'm doing well spiritually. And it was, a, it was almost as if the devil would say to me, Milton, you're, you've been doing really well today. And, and I would be like, yeah. And he's like, you know, you're actually doing better than most other people around you. And, and I'd be like, yeah, that's true. And then the lie would come in that said something to the effect of God must really favor you because you're doing so well. And the minute I would let that thought in, that's usually when the rug would get pulled out from underneath me and I would fail in some significant way. And because I had allowed myself to believe that my standing with God was based on my performance, uh, when that house of cards collapsed, you know, I would then find myself at the opposite extreme in a place of terrible condemnation. Hmm. How did that affect your relationships? Um, you, you know, you got, you're married, you've got kids, you were a pastor at that time. How did you having, I'm talking about before the, the, the most recent decade, but in the first 10 or so years that you're a pastor, um, how did that affect your relationships when you're thinking that God's 
um, you know, how God feels about you today is depending on how you performed. How did that map out with other people? Well, it had an effect on my my ministry. Uh, for the most part, I tried to preach and pastor, you know, the way that, you know, I saw in Scripture. Um, but I, even if I wasn't necessarily feeling it on a given day, but but I would say that the exuberant joy in the amazing grace of God was not was not evident. I would be hard on sin and even hard on myself in the pulpit, but but just exuding a, a joy in the Lord, a looking to Christ. Um, I wasn't my ministry was not characterized by that, and so even in my preaching, it was more and counseling. It was more of um, you know here's here's the five things you need to do. Um, here's the five guidelines. I did a Mother's Day sermon one time uh, years ago that was, you know, uh, here's the eight characteristics of a godly woman, and I just told the women, "This is this is what you need to be." And I never, I never really put the gospel on it. And there was a mother who was there that Sunday who was a part of our church, and she she drove home from church that day didn't say a word to her kids and pulled in her driveway and went inside the house, went into her bedroom, closed the door behind her and stayed there the rest of the day on mother's day. Mm. And, uh, she met with me a couple weeks later and she said, I just, she said, I felt like you laid me out on the operating table and you cut me open without anesthesia and you did your surgery. And then when you were done, you walked away from the table and you never sewed me back up. And, and she wasn't saying that critical of me. She was actually saying it more of there must be something wrong with me that I responded to your sermon the way I did. But honestly, that was a devastating critique of my, my ministry. And I've, I've tried to remind myself that of that every Mother's Day and, and every sermon I preach just about that. I've got to be a preacher of the grace of God and train our people and I myself to look to Jesus and to him alone. That's that's what earns God's favor. And when we fail, uh, we can go to the cross and God's grace is always there. And it's that grace that is kind of the wind beneath our wings that frees us up to really soar and want to obey God. And I found in my own life that with the more I focus on and celebrate, and as Timothy Keller says, do commerce with the reality of my justification, the more I find myself loving God and I catch myself obeying him in ways that I used to long to obey him, uh, but I just wasn't able to pull it off. And now that's happening more in a natural matter of course as I try to just live in the good of and live celebrating the reality of Jesus Christ and what he's done. Mm -hmm. The, uh, it's fascinating to me because I, I know that there are times, you know, especially given a background like yours where, uh, people are really, um, nervous uh, about preaching grace that they're imagined that their view of, church is the role of the church is to kind of um to uh lay out the standards 
um, and, and then to enforce them by, by social convention and that um, to um, to really preach grace is to say you know Jesus did it all you you don't you don't really have to do anything um, and the fear of course is the same fear that um, you know that Paul anticipates in Romans 6 that you know that if we really preach grace to people then boy they'll just feel free to do just about anything um, how have you how have you answered that sort of objection in your ministry well I think you just touched on it in part that you know, the gospel rightly understood, if, if Romans 6.1 teaches us anything, it teaches us that the gospel rightly presented does provoke the question, well, then can I just go on sinning that grace may abound? If, if my ministry doesn't provoke that question in people, then there's something deficient in the way that I'm preaching grace. The, the other thing to learn from Romans 6.1 and following is the fact that there is an answer to that question. And that is that, you know, we, we have to learn to say no to sin and to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Um, and we do that, you know, the New Testament is, is, has many imperatives. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are loaded with imperatives and Romans 12 and following. But those imperatives are always linked to God's grace to, you know, to the gospel and, um, and what, what we try to do here at Cornerstone is, is to put the emphasis on preaching the grace of God in Christ, because that's the fuel that, that then when we look at the imperatives that can drive, you know, our obedience and our congregation's obedience to the Lord. There are some people that are kind of down on imperatives and they're like, hey, don't tell me what God wants from me. Just tell me what Christ did for me. But I don't, I wouldn't, um, I don't view myself in that camp. The way I like to think of it is that the God who gave us Jesus Christ and salvation through him, from, from that same God, from that same heart comes these commandments. And I love the commandments of God because they come from the same heart that gave me Jesus and all that we know to be true in, in the gospel. So a, a balanced ministry, you know, between the indicatives of the gospel and the imperatives of the gospel would be uh, very consistent with the New Testament model. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Uh, really helpful, actually. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that I've wrestled with and have tried to teach people because I think it's what Paul tries to do, and I, I wouldn't have picked this up myself, but I've picked it up from you and from reading others, that Paul's way of dealing with people's problems, Paul the Apostle in the Scripture, uh, is to help them see that they've, they've mistaken part of the gospel. They've mistaken an aspect of the gospel. Um, maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit if you see where I'm heading. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think part of a turning point in my life was uh, I was talking to my younger brother, who's a pastor in South Carolina, and we had just started a series through First Corinthians. And he told me, he said, as you go through the book, try to notice how many times Paul goes back to the gospel and then reasons from some gospel truth to address whatever theological or ethical or relational or ecclesiastical issue. And 
and that's that's where you know I really began to see that you know that that pattern because that's you're right that's exactly what what Paul does in Corinthians we get to see a clinic he's uh, he's dealing with a church with multiple problems relational theological and ethical and the way that he responds to each of those is very instructive for uh, f- you know for us like take for example causing a weaker brother to stumble you know because someone's not willing to give up their right to eat certain things and Paul's like this is your brother for whom Christ died mm. so he goes back you know look at that brother Jesus died for him Jesus gave up his life for him you can't give up a piece of meat for this brother so he's right. he's starting with a gospel truth and he reasons from uh, from there when it comes to sexual immorality as you guys know that the Corinthians had bought into the notion that God only cares about the spiritual. He doesn't care about the physical. So it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. And, and we've got freedom to do whatever we want, even if it's immorality, because it's just a body thing. Well, Paul goes to the cross and reasons from that, that Christ has purchased our whole beings, even our physicalities. And therefore, in response to that purchase at the cross, we are to glorify God with our bodies. And there's other examples in Corinthians. The ultimate one is obviously, you know, First Corinthians 15, where the Corinthians had, you know, they had bought into some wrong notions about our physicality in the afterlife and essentially denying that. And, and I love Paul's thinking. I can just imagine him saying, okay, so they've got this defective belief about the afterlife. How do I want to address this? I know. I'll go back to the gospel. And so in chapter 15, he says, now I'm going to re-preach. I'm going to make known to you the gospel. Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. He appeared. He appeared. He appeared is how the text lays out. And then he reasons from that to the theological defect and seeks to minister correction. And seeing that pattern there for me, like I, I found over the last 10 years, I've increasingly become a one tool pastor. I've got one tool in my toolbox and that's the gospel. And I'm finding, as you guys are finding, that it works on, on anything. You're, you're talking to someone and, and maybe they're in sin or they're in a place of discouragement, despair, anxiety, um, and, and what I, what I want to do is look for the gospel defect. What aspect of the gospel do they not know or have they forgotten or they may know it, but they're just not believing it or they're not applying it. What is that? And I want to diagnose that and then walk with them and bring that to their attention and then, and then help think with them from that gospel reality to the issue that, that they're struggling with hmm. that's very helpful very very helpful um one of the ways in which i i think that god's been at work in me and your book has been a help in this and even the talk when we were when i saw you in march when you uh, were working with the men at north city presbyterian um <laughs> is that if we understand the gospel uh, we're given a new identity 
And and this has been an issue that um, several of us at our church have been sort of working through is that so many times what we're doing uh, is we're trying to work for an identity. Uh, we wouldn't say we're trying to save ourselves, but we have an idea of if people thought of me in a certain way, or even if I just me, I thought of me in a certain way, that right. would be a good life. And And we work for that identity instead of receiving an identity. Can you distinguish those for us? No, I tell you, I love the way you just said that. I need to think think about that that more because I think that's that's pretty radical and that's a great way to express it the way that you've just done. I mean, I know it's absolutely true. My wife and I right now are reading through a book by Timothy and Kathy Keller on marriage, the meaning of marriage and there was a section where he was talking about just all the verdicts that we've imbibed over the years of our life that maybe have been spoken and expressed by, you know, school teachers, parents, and by our own selves. And we're, we're all walking around with this collection of verdicts about ourselves that we're either trying to run from or overcome or prove wrong or prove right. And, and this verdict of justification, which I, I just, my heart leaps whenever I even say the word. It's like, because justification goes to the issue of how God chooses to think about us. When God justifies us, he basically says, I will always think of you as forgiven and as righteous with the righteousness of Jesus. And I will never think any other thought about you that's not governed by this. So that's the verdict, capital V that God has introduced into our lives. And, and I love the way you said it. It's a matter of just, just receive that verdict and let that in. And over time, let that overcome all these other verdicts that we're either trying to prove right or prove wrong or run away from and let what God thinks of us be what just dominates everything. Well, it gives us freedom then to live, uh, freedom to live out of the gospel, freedom to act, freedom to obey when we have that sense of complete peace with God. When, when we believe our justification, it's, forgive me for going back to Luther here, but it's, you know, Luther said, um, sin boldly. Right. And, and what he meant by that was we shouldn't not do the things we're supposed to do because we're afraid we're going to sin. And that's sometimes that's what happens as we get bottled up. We hit a bottleneck because, Oh, I, you know, I want to do this. I want to love my neighbor. I want to tell him about Jesus, but I'm not going to say the right thing. Right. You know, or I'm, I'm going to mess it up. And that, that having that verdict, Jack Miller used to talk about the, the big eye and the little eye, you know, the little eye, is is who I see myself as, and the the big eye is who God sees me as in Christ. Right. And knowing that we have that freedom to obey in such a way that even our obedience, even our our wrong obedience, is at some point going to be counted as obedience by the grace of Christ. Right, and that's that's amazing. I, I hope this doesn't sound offensive, but there's so much about the gospel that's just ridiculous. And what you just said, that's just insane, but it's true. Yeah. 
And the guy, it, I remember talking to a couple um, a number of years ago, and I was just giving them in a counseling. They were so condemned, so beaten up, and they had all these wrong verdicts that were self spoken and from other people that they just, uh, and back and forth to each other. They were both just in a terrible place of condemnation. And I just started walking them through one aspect of the gospel. And when I was done, I, I just asked them, well, you know, what do you guys think? And they said, this is like too good to be true. And mm. they said, we're, we're going to need to pray about this. And all I had done was given them scripture and, and I said, well, just dream for a minute. Like what, imagine that what I just said to you is true and that you actually believed it. What would you do? And this man teared up and he says, if this is really true, I would so love God. I would go crazy for him. And that's the gospel is, is, is big. It's massive. It's huge. It's breathtaking. It's staggering. And the problem is that in the church, what we do is we give this gospel to people, a portion of it to people until the day they get converted. And then we stop evangelizing them and start giving them the rules to live by. And consequently, we have churches that are full of under evangelized people who aren't wrapping their minds around the fullness of, of the truth of what is true of them in Christ. And I'm among them. I, my understanding of the gospel is still at the beginner level, but what I am learning just, it's, it's revolutionary. Hmm. No, I, I agree with you. I, I'm, um, you know, it comes in phases and stages and I would say the last two or three years of my life that, um, I've seen it so much more about, um, it's a new level for me, and it's a new level in terms of ministry. That standing in a pulpit and saying, "This is the most bizarre message you've ever heard." Right. It's, if if you think it's like ho hum, you, you don't get it. Right. You don't realize the enormity of what's being said here. Well, there's a reason that the Bible calls it a stumbling block. Right. Because it is. It, it's it's tough to get a hold of. Yeah. The, the fact that Christians who are already believers, I, I'm still hung up on something you said a minute ago about my, you know, my congregate, we end up with congregations that are under evangelized. Right. And, mm. um, maybe, maybe under discipled, but understanding discipleship as the application of the gospel. Right. You know, going back to what you said earlier, um, you know, if you got one tool in your toolbox, Paul said, I preach Christ and him only. And it wasn't that he only preached grace. He never told anybody what to do, but he understood that the the telling him what to do, the ethical, was a working out of the gospel. Right. Again, you, you said all this earlier, but I'm, so I'm thinking about this idea they're under-evangelized. Right. We're not thinking enough. We're not preaching the gospel enough to ourselves. Well, and I'm running around in the back of my mind here. I spend... I do. Uh, Milton, you don't know me very much. Hopefully, we'll have a chance to run into each other again. But I, I'm um, in a revitalization church, and I help our denomination uh, think through and and get better at doing revitalization in general. And one of the things um, th it, with that is that I spend a lot of time in the pastoral epistles, because uh -huh. you know here's Paul sending two guys to revitalization churches, 
right? That's essentially what they are. And it's fascinating in Titus um, that, that Paul says to Titus, you know, in the midst of a mess, um, you know, to, to grab a title from a book that's written by a couple friends of Sean and I's, um, it give him grace because, because grace is going to teach him to say no to ungodliness. Right. Grace teaches us to say no, not law. Right. Isn't that fascinating the way that Paul turns that? Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness because it grabs our hearts. The love of God has grabbed our hearts, and we go, I want to love you. And you have that 1 John 4.19 dynamic actually working. We're loving because we sense that we've been loved, right? Right. It's fascinating to get that right. We've talked before about how that's the whole setup of the Heidelberg Catechism, that it's built on those those three pillars of guilt, guilt, grace, gratitude. Hmm. And, that issues forth in yeah, goodness. Yeah, yeah. Ten Commandments is always at the end of the confessions, and Christ is always at the beginning. Yeah. What did, you say was fourth, what, what did you say was the fourth element? No, just the um, three. You're well, there's the, the three. Yeah. yeah. Guilt, so grace, guilt, grace, gratitude. gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude is the structure of it, but one of the ways that, that I think helpfully um, um, Reformed Baptist uh, friend has put it to me as he said um, – that the Heidelberg Catechism, the structure is guilt, grace, gratitude. But what it's going after is that your gratitude gets formed into goodness. Okay. Yeah. That your that your yeah. that your interest in the commands of God and in obeying Him are what give shape to your gratitude. You turn right. to God like Isaiah, and you go, "Yes, I'd love to serve you. What would you have me do?" And the right. commands give shape to your gratitude. Wow. Yeah, that's that's excellent. That's good stuff. Well, Milton, we know you've got a meeting you've got to get to, and uh, we've taken a lot of your time already. Thank you for making time today, brother. We really appreciate it. This was wonderful. Well, thank you. Let's talk again. Yeah, All right. I would absolutely love to. Been good hearing from you. I'm going to pick up this book. I know know three people. I'm not going to tell you that I'm one of those three people. I know three (laughs) people who need to read your book right now, so um, I'm definitely going to pick up a copy. Uh, But thank you. Thank you. God bless you both. You you too. And uh, listeners, the Lord bless you as you pursue him through his ordinary means. Mm